Hi everyone, it's Leslie here. Before we get into the episode, you've probably noticed it's been a long time since we've posted one. I'm sorry for the delay and sad to let you know, this will be the final episode of the StoryGrid Writer's Room podcast. Last fall, I stepped into the editor-in-chief role with StoryGrid Publishing and soon realized that delivering the podcast in the way we have in the past is more than I can manage with my other commitments. At the same time, Valerie is continuing work on her novel, Immortal, has been busy with editing clients, and is still producing the Unpodcast. And unfortunately, we realized we can't do it all. Now, it's been an amazing journey studying story and sharing what we've learned in this show and before it on the Story Grid Editor Roundtable podcast. And we really want to thank you for coming along with us on this adventure. Now, although this means we won't be doing the deep dive into the four quadrants of A Wizard of Earthsea as we'd planned, the episode that follows includes our global discussion applying the editor's six core questions. Now, if you want to get in touch with Valerie, you can find her at ValerieFrancis.ca and I'm at Writership.com. But if you have a hankering to listen to a podcast episode, be sure to check out the current episodes of the StoryGrid podcast with its new format. Thanks again to everyone who has listened, commented, asked a question, written a review, and spread the word about the podcast. We appreciate your support and encouragement more than we can say. Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. And my name is Valerie Francis. I'm also a StoryGrid certified editor, but I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. So Valerie, this week, we well, this season, we are diving into a story that has been a really important one for me. It's A Wizard of Earthsea, the 1968 fantasy novel by Ursula K. Le Guin. And today we're going to look at the editor's six core questions. 
Um, and then in the episodes that follow, we're going to go quadrant by quadrant to review the five commandments of storytelling for each so that you can see how we analyze the global story of a masterwork. Now, whether this is a masterwork is up for debate. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, we're both going to talk a little bit about point of view and and see how's it working or not. Um, I'm still unpacking Heroic Journey 2.0, so we're going to be talking some about that. And then, as I mentioned before, this is a personal masterwork for me. So this, I read this story at a pivotal moment in my life, and it immediately resonated with me then. And now I'm really understanding why which is, is fun, um, but also, you know, revealing. Um, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> so Valerie, how about you? What's your relationship with A Wizard of Earthsea? Well, I'm coming at this for the first time. After I read it, I did a little research on the book, and then I understood it. Clearly, it's, a, it's meant for a younger audience. And I really understood how this is probably too you and, and other people as important to your childhood as say something like Anne of Green Gables is to me, which I totally get. So I think we're going to have a really wonderful and important and timely conversation about the difference between a personal masterwork and a masterwork, because we can love a book passionately for all kinds of different reasons. But when we look at it through you know, in the cold, hard light of day without any emotional attachment, without any memories to it, we can see different things in it. Now, I look, I just want to say this right off the bat. I am not here to drop an anvil on Ursula K. Le Guin's head. So I don't want anybody sending me hate email <laughs> like I got when we did the uh, Blade Runner episode on the Roundtable podcast, because that's a personal masterwork, right? And the People love that film. And I know people love this book and there's tons of great stuff in it. Um, yeah, I think this is great. It's great for you to have this cold perspective or coming to it cold, right? And for me to be totally in love with the story because it'll provide some balance to the, um, to, to the pursuit. So, okay. Well, we're going to start with this editor six core questions analysis as we do and the first question is what's the genre so i've identified this as action adventure labyrinth so this is a person against nature the nature part being the labyrinth um and the the hero or as we call them the luminary agent is trying to save the agency deprived victim or victims and get out of the maze-like edifice. So the core need is survival. The core value is death and life. The core emotion is excitement. And we'll see how that goes. Um, something that this is adding these core needs, values, and emotions is something new that we're adding. And it comes from the four core framework, which is one of the story grid beats. And it's one I highly recommend because when, when you start to think about this in your story, like one of the 
issues that writers struggled with a lot is figuring out what their genre is because there might be elements of many genres in your story that's totally natural but when you start to consider your story and the genre of your story through these core needs values and emotions and events suddenly it starts to become clearer which genre you're writing in so it's it's a it's a great book the four core framework and um it's really it's a really useful tool so the external is what i'm calling the global action story the secondary is the internal and i would call it worldview maturation um so the core need is self-actualization becoming fulfilling your potential in essence the core value is ignorance and wisdom and the core emotion is a kind of satisfaction um read the the four core framework to understand all that. We can't go into every one of these details here, but, uh, but it is important to kind of understand what we mean by the core emotion. So then for subplots, I'm spotting a performance in the professional domain um, and also a buddy love story between Ged and Vetch, um, which is... I mean, this is a scaled down story. Most epic fantasy stories are really long. And this is about 60,000, 63,000 words, which, um, which makes it long, but not long by epic fantasy standards. So we're not delving into the, the depths of these relationships, but you can see the, the pattern of, of those subplots as well. Okay, the reality genre is fantasy. One of the things that we see in fantasy is we see the heroic journey aspect of the story really emphasized, and, and we see that here. Um, when you pair that with a literary style, as Ursula K. Le Guin does here, you get that um, not as exciting action story. So it's more like the old man and the sea in the way that that's an action story. It's quiet, contemplative action. Uh, the structure is the arch plot. So those are all kind of the, the fundamentals of, of genre, the five, five leaf clover that we use here. Uh, for the genre for A Wizard of Earthsea. Okay, so then we want to talk about conventions. So Valerie, would you like to kind of walk us through those? Yeah, there's a, a bunch of them. All right, so we've got the first one is a disturbed, unbalanced physical and social environment that gives rise to conflict. And of course, if you've read the novel, you know that Earthsea is... Um, it's a world like our own and it has shadow agents and those shadow agents want to take control <laughs> and of course they have different types of power there i'm just looking at some of my notes here so i don't forget um there's obviously wizards and witches i've got an issue with the way the witches are presented um agree <laughs> we'll come, we'll circle back to that in another episode and um then of course we have dueling hierarchies because this is a fantasy book and a lot of 
words are made up and I'm coming at this cold. Leslie, if I mispronounce something, I want you to correct me. Uh, there's the cognation and there's dragons and there's the Serret who seek to take agency from others as they, as they pursue power. And then you've got Ojayan and Vetch. I like Ojayan and Vetch. I really like both of those characters. And then we got to the school for wizards. And I'm like, I, I read that chapter and I said, well, Ursula K. Le Guin has it as one chapter in a book. Uh, JK Rowling earned billions of dollars. <laughs> uh, uh, and a little sidebar here. I mean, I, I am a Harry Potter, a Harry Potter fan and a JK Rowling fan. One of the things that we forget to notice when we're writing our novels and we say there isn't a masterwork like like mine. Well, look at JK Rowling. Yes, there's some innovation in there for sure, but she really did stretch uh, out to the literature that had come before her, like a Wizard of Earthsea and mined information from that. Uh, whether, whether this is where she got the idea for the School of Wizards or not, I don't know, but it's in the canon. So anyway, we have the school and that's on Roke Island. Um, and there's definitely a hierarchy within that. The luminary agent or the hero, that's Ged, of course. And then the shadow agent or the villain I love is actually a literal shadow. Uh, this is the type of stuff you can get away with in literature that's for younger people. That if you did it for um, an adult in an adult novel, it would be on the nose. But if it's for children or even young adults, the younger young adults, uh, you kind of need that. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh, speech and praise of the shadow agent. Now, I think this is when they're in Roke in, in the, the school, Genshur, I guess that's his name, Genshur, who, who is the archmage, he gives a short speech. This is after Ged has released the shadow. And Genshur talks about that shadow. And he refuses to let Ged leave Roke because the shadow would possess him and turn him into a Gebeth, which is a, a puppet, you know, just basically someone who's doing evil's bidding. And it's not a huge, long monologue about the, the the shadow and the evil, but it's established there, this is shortly after the shadow is released, it's established then that this is a powerful being and, and one to be feared. So I'm calling that the speech and praise of the villain. Uh, a deadline or, you know, this, this is the clock idea. Well, if Ged doesn't defeat the shadow, it's, I, Ged has to defeat the shadow before it defeats him pretty much. That's how it, how it goes. And set piece action sequences. Uh, what was the phrase you used uh, a minute ago? Um, quiet action or something? <gasps> well, okay, so there's no, no car chases, there's no <laughs> bombs going off or anything like that. That's not happening here. It is quiet, but it's there. And there are a couple of really great scenes. For example, the scene where this shadow was released. And then you've got like a bazillion obligatory moments. So Leslie, do we want to go through all these or do we want to just pick out some interesting ones? 
let's just pick out some interesting ones. We'll have these in the show notes. And actually the obligatory moments, they align with the 20 spinal scenes that we're going to review in depth in the coming episodes. So I don't think it makes sense to go over them in depth here. Um, But which moments kind of stand out for you in, um, in the story? Why don't we talk a minute about the fix it and forget it mission? That's going to be new to people who have been hanging around the story grid universe. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. So the fix it and forget it mission is one that we don't normally, you know, we haven't talked about in terms of obligatory moments in the past when we've just looked at eight basic scenes. Um, And it's a, it's, like preparation for it's that, well, let's, let me say what it is. It is the resolution of the beginning hook. So they're preparing to cross the threshold, but there's some stuff they've got to do. And the attitude is one of, oh, well, I'll take care of this little thing and then I'll go home. So forget this is, he's going to go to uh, to Roke, and he's going to learn to harness his power, and it's all going to be good, right? He's got this. His the skills that he has already will serve him well. He'll accomplish it, just like he dispatched the Cargs, you know, from Gaunt. He's a powerful guy. He just needs some knowledge. That's it, or that's what he thinks. Um, but when he's prevented from actually coming ashore on Roke by a storm, at least temporarily, then, you know, it's, it's um, the universe kind of communicating to Ged, you don't have this son, you know, so, um, but he doesn't pick up on that. What I like about this is that it's a way of dramatizing the internal genre because Ged is naive, right? It's a worldview maturation, internal genre story here. And I really like the way Le Guin has dramatized that part of the story because it, it can be really challenging. This, this whole idea of an internal genre can be really challenging to understand how it works. Or like one of the questions we get often is, if my global genre is internal, do I need an external? And the answer is yes, because you need a way for the internal to be dramatized. Like, otherwise it's all just taking place inside a character's head and it, it, then you're into a whole different type of book. But here, like Ursula K. Le Guin could have just said, um, Ged didn't know enough, you know, Ged was a fool. He thought he only needed a little bit of, a little bit of lessons and and formal knowledge and then he would be just fine no she allowed us to watch ged make the mistake so so that's the and learn the lesson as a result of making that mistake so that's the dramatization of his immaturity which i really appreciated in this book yes you know one of the things that came out of the the story grid incubator that we just had last week uh, was 
the the revelation which is a you know it's like of course once you see it it's of course that the external is a and is an external manifestation of the internal experience and tim cracked that right he was like oh well the external is right this is what it was like for me when right so that's what the external can do because as you say just talking about our thoughts is not very interesting um to most people right so i think like that's a really important thing so even if your genre your global genre is worldview maturation and you know i think a a fair argument could be made with this story that the external that the global is worldview maturation um i yeah that that's not unreasonable at all if you had that um belief um so they are very very close it's interesting that you say that because of course we did our analysis separately and then came together and looked at what we had and in the end my genre breakdown was the same as yours but as i was reading the novel i thought oh i wonder if this is global maturation so once i was finished reading the book i had to go back then and put my editor's hat on and really have a hard look at uh what the global genre is but I, and i agree with you that it's action but with a really strong internal genre which makes it um all the more delicious like there's there's um i love a good performance story and there's one that i keep coming back to and it's aquila and the bee it's got and I've, I've only just realized why that performance story has stuck with me it's because the internal genre is so strong and it's because the characters are so strong you know we don't care what happens unless we care who it's happening to right and in that it's a very quiet movie it's a beautiful movie and i know we can get it here in north america i don't know about the uk i do know that it's not available in australia and new zealand because i've recommended it to clients there and they can't find it so if you can find aquila and the bee and you enjoy performance stories this is one that has a strong that is a global external genre with a strong internal because that when you can get that working like ursula k Le Guin has done here uh, it's uh as Sean would say, it's a humdinger. <laughs> oh, that's a great word, isn't it? It is. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna we're gonna talk more about the core event in in a few minutes. Um, so we'll leave the obligatory moments again. They are they'll be in the show notes, so you can check them out there. Um, but let's move on to question three, which is, of course, one of my favorite questions. What's the point of view and narrative device? So, of course, it's editorial omniscient here, um, which is a very, let's say, a very special point of view that is challenging to master. Um, and so when would you use that? And to me, I think, I think it works here. We're telling the story of a great wizard before he became a great wizard. And we need a perspective that's beyond the individual because we're trying to understand 
um, where he sits in the in the pantheon of all the mages who've ever existed in Earthsea and how he came to be who he became, you know, how did he fulfill his potential? So we're, we want to look at the insights that he didn't possess. Um, and so that calls for a vantage point outside the character. Now I struggled a little with, bit with who was telling this story because she's got that little thing at the end that says, well, it's not Vetch if that's what you're thinking. Um, but it's got to be someone like him or someone like Ojayan, you know, who is, or maybe one of the teachers who wants to preserve these important uh, lessons for other people because, because great leaders don't just, you know, aren't born. They have to go through this process of, uh, of maturation if they're going to be any good at what they're doing. I think one of the challenges for any writer, and I assume it must have been for Le Guin as well, is she's taken the story of Ged almost from cradle to grave. <laughs> Not quite, but she's taken him from uh, a young boy who you know, nobody really had time for to the Archmage of Roke. That's a lot of life to cover in 63,000 words. That to me is adding an unnecessary challenge to the storytelling. And I mean, it's a creative choice, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not one I would have made because it's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's too, it, it is very difficult to, in 63,000 words, do this whole big lifespan, which is why a lot of people come to us and their book is 200, 250,000 words, because they're doing this and they want to include everything. So if, if you're going to do this whole cradle to grave-ish idea, you've really got to be selective as to what you include and don't include. And you have to figure out how to make time pass uh, naturally. Um, because you can't possibly include, you know, every day uh, of their life. Anyway, um, I have some thoughts of point of view, but Leslie, I don't know if you're finished yet. Basically, I mean, there's more to say, but, uh, but I've, I've said a lot of it before, and I'm more interested in what you, what your thoughts are on this, because you've been really wrestling with point of view in your novel immortal and trying to figure out which you know what point of view makes sense for the different storylines and all that so i think your perspective here will be really really helpful yeah and and in the end what i had to do is write some chapters from different points of view to see which one was making sense and uh because i don't know what else to do right <laughs> but you know, naturally, I think every writer has a default point of view. Mine was third person limited. Uh, and by that, I mean, the, 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 the narrator is focused on the protagonist only, and can actually describe what the protagonist is thinking and feeling. So it's like the camera 
It's, it's like is inside the character's head and inside the body, but yet outside the body at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, I've since heard that called third person subjective, and it makes a lot of sense to me because then there's also third person objective, which is the camera's still outside the body. The narrator's still outside the body of the protagonist, but can no longer uh, hear the thoughts of the character. So this third person subjective is my natural default. And the, the, the point of view that I naturally rebel against is third person omniscient because <laughs> it just, felt to me like it was fraught with difficulties and and I just didn't have the writing chops to pull off a third person omniscient in a way that would make the story sing. And I do have a little bit of a bee in my bonnet about it um, because a lot of kids books are in third person omniscient and if you don't know what you're doing, it becomes really condescending. And it's that condescension that gets my back up. It, it and by that I mean the, the author. There's a lot of those. There's like a boatload of author intrusion, right? The author is very much saying, "Now, boys and girls, you sit there, and I will tell you a story that tells you how to behave and what to think and who to be friends with and all that kind of stuff." I rebel against that, and I think kids do too. Which is why Harry Potter is so popular because J.K. Rowling doesn't do that at all. She is presenting the story and allowing the reader to make up his or her own mind. Uh, I think that's one of the many keys to her success. So as I was reading A Wizard of Earthsea, this third person omniscient, it's really in your face. You can't, you, you can't avoid dealing with it. And it, it, to me, Ged and his story was way off in the distance, way, way off in the distance. Uh, and it's not just a case of a story being, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You can do that, no problem. But we're like when we're watching Star Wars, we're right there with Luke and everybody else. We are, we're engaged in their struggle. Ged's story felt so far away from me that I couldn't attach to it emotionally. Uh, I didn't feel any of Ged's feelings. I couldn't think, I, I couldn't hear any of his thoughts, really. There was, uh, as we go along in the episodes, I'll pull out more specific uh, examples of this. But when I wanted to know how something felt, I was told how it felt. So that combined with the, the emotional distance or the psychic distance that third per person omniscient naturally has baked into it, I found it really difficult to attach emotionally. Now, if I had read it as a young person, I don't think I would have noticed that. I think I just totally would have been with Ged. Um, I can see why this is a favorite of so many people. I can see why it would resonate with a lot of people. She does, she does some things in here that, you know, my hat is off to her because I can't pull it off. I wouldn't even touch it with a barge pole. And her her the voice that she uses the way that she presents this story it very it very much is mythical it's like a legend it's like uh you know a story uh, from thousands of years ago this third person omniscient adds to that right it's part of the flavor it's also the language that she uses it's almost biblical 
the 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 way that it's written it's almost it's not inverse but you know if she had suddenly written something like and ged said unto vetch it wouldn't have been out of place it would have just been right at home there now um stephen pressfield does something similar in gates of fire and i remember when i read that i just thought this guy's way beyond me i i have no idea how he's doing this uh so i I am in awe of the artistry that allows that sort of language to create this story of old, of like of ancient times. So I really appreciated that. But uh, but again, emotionally, I didn't really care what happened to Ged. <laughs> you didn't care, Valerie. I, I was just like, okay, I'm reading the book. This is Leslie's choice. It's like, like you said about Gone Girl. Um, it wouldn't have been your choice to read the book, but you read it and you learned a lot from it. A Wizard of Earthsea, I probably would not have continued to read it, but I did because we're because you picked it. And I'm like, Leslie's seen something in here. I'll just keep going. <laughs> but that that is something that I'll talk about more as we go along, because I'm really curious to see as we drill down into each of the acts. What effect that point of view is having. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It'll be great to have your perspective on that. Um, so when we're talking about attaching to the characters, objects of desire are really important. And that's the next thing that we look at in the editor's six court questions. So we've got external or conscious wants, and we've got internal or subconscious needs. And this is really this is where we develop or we evoke empathy or generate empathy. Sean would say generate empathy. Um, but um, that in, and so I'm wondering if there's a disconnect um, in that, in the way that's being delivered. So what I found is externally, which it sounds funny to say that, but, but what, Ged wants is power, knowledge, and respect, you know, kind of acknowledgement of, you know, look at my big ass mage powers, <laughs> sort of, excuse my uh, language there, um, but uh, um, which all feel internal, right? It's not that he wants, he doesn't want a sports car, he doesn't want to be king uh, of the of the world he wants power knowledge and respect and i wonder if that that's part of why it's a little hard to attach to him now internally so that's what he wants um internally he needs to grow up and and i'm saying that with you know all the care of a, of a mom of a 15 year old um he he needs to stop being ruled by his emotions, right? His emotions get out of control. Somebody goads him, somebody challenges him, and he immediately turns his agency over to that person. And you know what? We've all been there. Um, maybe even last week, um, <laughs> maybe even yesterday. So it's not to judge Ged. It's not about judging him. But, but this is really important. For someone who becomes a leader, they have to learn to feel their feelings, but also be the master of them. 
I think this is a really important point because if you consider who the target audience is, watching Ged let his emotions and his maybe his pride or whatever you want to call it get the better of him again is another dramatization of his immaturity that's how this whole shadow gets released in the first place jasper's got his number right jasper knows exactly how to push his buttons so again a dramatization of the internal um, character arc which is is wonderful Excellent. Okay. So once we know what the character wants and needs, then we start looking at the controlling idea. That's our fifth question. So the controlling idea is a one sentence statement. It identifies the change in the story and the cause for the change. And it's really useful because stories are prescriptive or cautionary they contain knowledge about how to deal with unexpected change in our own lives. So what's the change here? Well, um, Ged saves himself, but we also know that he goes on to do great things. He saves the lives of a lot of people. He increases agency in the world of Earthsea um, as one of the, one of the greatest archmages ever. Right? So, Great leaders, of course, like great writers or shipbuilders or teachers aren't simply born. They become great through a process of actualization, um, through a process of, you know, fulfilling their potential. So to me, this story is really about a, a pivotal time in his life. I mean, it's almost... It is, a, it is of novel length, but it almost feels more like a novella. Like we're really get, zeroing in on a sequence of events in the life of Ged that is mirrored across his entire lifetime. But so anyway, so that's the change that really happens for him. He stays alive and he goes on to save the lives of others because of this process of maturation. So, which is the cause of the change, right? How does Ged become this great leader? Well, he learns to stop allowing his amygdala to run the show, right? When he reacts emotionally without thinking things through, he gives up his agency. So he can't make wise decisions until he masters himself. And he can't be a responsible leader until he takes responsibility for his actions. So again, this is the process of growing up or maturing. And again, that sounds a lot like a global worldview story rather than an action story. But, but the thing for me is that Ged possesses great power. Like he's super powerful from the beginning. He stumbles into controlling the goats uh, to, to get, that run after him. Um, so we can see um, through illusion, he can wield strong magic. And to me, that takes all of the stakes to death and life. Um, because if he doesn't master himself, then a lot of people are going to die. If he doesn't grow up, the world loses not just this powerful force, but the agency of lots of other people. So the controlling idea that I've come up with is life prevails when young people choose to apply their agency mindfully. All right. Shall we move on to the beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff? 
Now, the idea in the editor's six core questions is that you articulate each of these three acts in a sentence. And I think that's a really important discipline to develop because a sentence or two is much harder to write than a paragraph or two. And by boiling it down to just a sentence forces you to really focus on the shape of your story and what your story is about and whether or not it's in keeping with um, your genre and whether from these three sentences you can see the um, objects of desire and all that good stuff. All right, so here we go. The beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff. In the beginning hook, Ged discovers his mage powers and saves Gaunt from the Kargs, but he's goaded into releasing a shadow and chooses to pursue his education at the wizard school on Roke. The middle build, Ged shows great promise at the school, but after he releases a shadow beast, he hides, then runs, and eventually decides he must face the shadow before it takes his power for evil. And in the ending payoff, Ged hunts the shadow with the help of his friend Vetch and finally defeats it by calling it by its true name. Yes. Yeah, so, of course, we're going to explode those uh, as we go through the season. And but it and I will say it was difficult to break those down into there's so much going on and it's hard. It's hard when it is a personal personal masterwork to boil it down. I just want to give you all the details, Valerie. Um, <laughs> and. Well, I think this is the case with stories that we are, we have a close emotional connection to. Like, I think it's the hardest to do in our own books, especially after we've written a draft, you know, and if the draft has been sort of a stream of consciousness writing, which sometimes you just got to spit it out, right? And then look at what you have at the end. And if we're emotionally attached to what we've written, it can be really hard to boil it down. In this case, A Wizard of Earthsea is a personal masterwork for you, and it's an important novel for you personally. So again, it's challenging because you don't want to leave out some of the scenes that really mean a lot to you. But the, the function here of the, the three sentence summary is just to see if the shape of the story is in place. And then, as you said, as we go on now for the rest of the season, we're going to break this down uh, like a like a lot, a lot, a lot. Okay, so Valerie, that's our analysis of the editor's six core questions. Um, but we've got some key takeaways, which are more like a key discussion that has been, I mean, when I read what you wrote, I was like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, ah, right? Like like pointing out the difficulties, right? It almost felt, Valerie, like having my own work critiqued. So that was really interesting. Um, and I, <laughs> I was feeling a little like Ged and thinking, well, what does Valerie know? She's coming to this cold. She hasn't read this as much as I have. She does not have this, <laughs> which was totally an emotional response. Like she doesn't get me, but you do. Right. And that's the thing. But what you're seeing really helped me flash on some insights about the story and about myself. And, and so that was really wonderful. So um, it's more of a 
high level. Uh, it's more of a takeaway discussion um, rather than our a few bullet points. But let's let's dive into this because I think it's really useful. Okay, so I, I've touched on a couple of these already. That at this point, I've got two key things that I'm thinking about here. One of them is the third person omniscient point of view and how that impacts other aspects of the story. Like what, what impact does that have on the narrative drive? Like there are points in the novel where the, the narrator will suddenly jump to the future. Like something is happening to Ged right now and he's working through it. He's in the crisis moment. And then it jumps to the future and the narrator will say something like, um, Ged didn't understand that at the time, but later he came to understand that the action was kindly meant or something like that. I'll, I'll pull out real examples as we get going. So I want to look at those instances and say, okay, is that helping the narrative drive? Is it harming the narrative drive? Does it have it? Is the, is the impact neutral? I really want to look into that. The other thing is with omniscient that I find particularly difficult. If the narrator knows everything. How do you create narrative drive in the first place? How do you decide as the writer which information to give the reader? And how do you justify giving them certain bits of information without giving them other bits of information without it seeming manipulative or intentionally keeping the reader in the dark? And if you're going to jump from character's head to character's head to character's head, What's the justification for switching from one guy to the next guy at that particular point in time? So this is what another thing I really want to have a look at. Um, the other thing, and Leslie, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear what you said. I thought, well, if Leslie and I are coming to blows, it's going to be over this next thing. <laughs> and that is the importance of the core event. All right. So here I am reading this book that everybody loves. It's not my cup of tea, but that's okay. I, I, I will keep reading a book that isn't in my preferred genre uh, if it's working, because then I get to learn about the genre. Now, I, I do enjoy fantasy, okay? I haven't read it in a long time because I've been busy reading other stuff, uh, but I do enjoy fantasy. So I, I'm, I'm hanging in there with this story and I'm like, okay, Ged is gonna meet the shadow and we're gonna have a great, the way the shadow is set up, when the shadow arrives, it's a great scene. I mean, Ged is just flattened. <laughs> and we really get to see the difference in the power dynamic. So that and that's early in the book. Now we get to the to this this uh, showdown between them. It's in the last couple of pages of the novel. So you're really hanging in there a long time for it. And then it fizzles. I was like, what the heck? What the heck? What the heck? That's just, this is unacceptable. <laughs> so, so here's, let me just, it's, it's all over in two paragraphs. And then she switches point of view. And it's two short paragraphs. In this book that I have with really big font, it's eight lines. <laughs> I was crying foul on it, Leslie. I was crying foul on it. And oh, Leslie was going to stop being my friend. Okay. 
so the lead up to this is is really good because Ged is slowly approaching. He's been hunting the shadow because he's learned that the way, how do you defeat your fear, your fear, you face it, right? So he's been hunting this shadow and creeping up on it and creeping up on it. And the shadow has been shape-shifting into different forms and slowly advancing toward Ged. So you're waiting, you're like, oh, like we know how this all went the last time you two meet. So what's gonna happen? Well, well, dear reader, let me tell you how this goes. All right, here it is. Aloud and clearly breaking that old silence, Ged spoke the shadow's name. And in the same moment, the shadow spoke without lips or tongue, saying the same word, Ged. And the two voices were one voice. Ged reached out his hands, dropping his staff, and took hold of his shadow, of the black self that reached out to him. Light and darkness met and joined and were one. And then we're in Vetch's point of view. The heck? <laughs> Thanks for coming, folks. Right, <laughs> right. The end. Bye. Love Ursula. <laughs> I just thought, oh, oh, but the, but this this was set up so beautifully that at some point I'm going to. Um, I even got a bookmarked here. Let me tell you what chapter it's in. So, you can, chapter four, the loosing of the shadow. Um, read that chapter if you've got the book and see the setup, and then flip to the last few pages and see the payoff um that's a really important lesson anyway are you still my friend <laughs> i am still your friend and this is a brilliant really truly brilliant um insight about the story right so um you've touched on something that sean's been talking about a lot lately we have these macro components. They're foundational to story. Um, you, you've probably been hearing about this if you're in the guild or if you're in, uh, if you've done the heroic journey 2.0, uh, workshop, uh, seminar. Um, so, and it's huge. I mean, Sean took days and days to go through this and it's been, he's been working on this for a long time. So I'm not going to be able to explain it satisfactorily in the few minutes that we have left here, but I'm going to do my best. So we have on the surface, we have above the surface and we have beyond the surface. Okay. So these are the fundamental elements that make up story. Now in a, in a nutshell, the on the surface is what the characters are doing or saying. Um, and then the above the surface is what they're thinking in a nutshell, right? There's a lot more to it, but that's, that's where we're, where we are. And then we, beyond the surface is this dramatization of deep patterns of human behavior. Um, it's, and, and if you want to like the, the best way for me to think about it is when the character hits the all is lost moment, they choose to go on, even though they have no idea if they're going to be successful and, and that they don't even know if what they, if the way they're viewing the world now is accurate. So we have these three components in every story that works, but in some stories, 
one or two may be emphasized more than the others. Now, most fantasy stories have a pretty solid balance of all three, um, or they lean heavily on the on the surface. In my notes, I have the wrong thing, so I need to <laughs> fix that for later. Um, so they may lead, they often lean heavily on on the surface. So the action, what are they doing? You know, you have these great action scenes. Brandon Sanderson is great for this. There are lots of other writers, of course, too. But in um, those stories feel very exciting and intriguing. And they, gen they also generate the catharsis. You also have that sense of the character going on um, when they hit all is lost. Um, so some stories uh, emphasize the other elements. And I think that's what's going on here, right? Um, this, and I'm, I changed my thinking on this in just the last few minutes. So, so bear with me for a moment. I'm working a, a little off, the, uh, off, the, off of my notes. So the big moment in that beyond the surface um, component to my mind is in the all is lost moment, when that character hits bottom, what do they do? They choose to go on. If it's the heroic, um, journey, they choose, not, they choose to double down on their old, uh, way of thinking in the, in the anti-heroic thing, uh, path. So if we look at the all is lost moment, which we will do in depth in uh, when we do the, uh, the third quadrant, that, that is done in almost excruciating detail because Ursula K. Le Guin is, is really focusing on beyond the surface here. Um, she also has a literary style, which is a it's different from most of the um, most kind of hardcore fantasy. Um, and it makes the story less exciting because we have this focus. Now, you can do this, but you have to understand that you're going to have a smaller audience. You're not aiming for the middle of the bell curve. If you want to hit the middle of the bell curve, then you have to add the excitement that on the on the surface actiony stuff right okay so i have some reasons why she probably chose this i'm not gonna i've got those notes you can see them in the show notes um but i think from her perspective she was probably thinking the moment he chooses to go on is kind of like the core event of the story that's the core event for her and that whatever he does afterwards flows from that and we already know he becomes a, a big super duper mage so we know he's going to defeat the shadow. So it's really about the story is all about getting to that moment where he chooses to go on. Um, so again, if you, if you want to do this, knock yourself out. Um, but just understand that your audience is going to be a little bit different. So for me, all of this highlights, and it's a really important mess, uh, 
message and lesson. And I'm so glad Valerie brought this out. It's the importance of figuring out what are you trying to accomplish and then making all of your stories consistent with that. I mean, all of your story decisions consistent with that. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>